0: Let me tell you a little bit about my uh, faith story, spiritual story, because uh, it'll connect with what we're going to talk about this morning. If you were with me for the marriage night or the parenting morning, you're getting a little bit of repeat here, so I'm sorry for that. But my spiritual life started, I grew up in Connecticut, outside Hartford. My spiritual life started when I was a baby boy, three months old, in my crib, reading my Bible, doing my journaling, and the Lord, no, um, three months old, my mom uh, was at a really dark place in her life. Uh, My... Father was my mother's second husband. Um, things were not going well in their marriage. My mother was my father's fourth wife. And neither of my parents were Christians. And my mom became uh, very depressed and very despondent in her life. And the Lord brought a friend into her life who shared the gospel with her. And my mom, through the grace of God, responded and repented of her sins and put her faith and trust in Christ. And I was, So I was three months old when my mom was born again. So then I grew up with a mother who prayed with me and a mother who took me to church and read the Bible with me. Uh, My father was not a Christian. As I said, this was his fourth marriage. Uh, He was very hardened uh, to spiritual things. My parents did end up divorcing when I was in high school. My dad, turns out, had mistresses in different cities around the country where he would travel, and that um, eventually drove the marriage apart. So it took uh, many years of God working in my life to bring me to a place of forgiveness for my father, for what he had had done. Um, Fast-forwarding his part of the story just a little bit, he died uh, five years ago. My dad passed away. He was 90 years old when he died. Three weeks before he died, God worked a miracle, brought him to repentance and faith in Christ. He was born again the last three weeks of his life, totally different than the first 90 years. Um, He reconciled with his family members and forgave and healed those relationships, And it was an amazing, amazing miracle uh, of God. I can't wait um, to see my dad again uh, in heaven someday. In my family, 2004 was a big turning point. We had been married 10 years. We had four-ish kids. I don't remember exactly. But I had been a youth pastor for those 10 years. And the long story short is that my heart and my passion as a youth pastor, pastor at my church, was passing my faith to everybody else's children. So my number one mission in life was making sure all your kids heard about Jesus and all your kids learned how to pray and all your kids learned how to follow God. And all that while, I had no plan, no purpose, no intentionality whatsoever to do the same for my kids. I was helping everybody else's marriage and not investing in my marriage. I was, I was a real spiritual leader at church and totally passive spiritually in my house. And God brought me to a, a very deep place of brokenness and, and uh, repentance. And, and as I'll, some scriptures I'll share with you this morning, He turned my heart to the ministry of my children, to the ministry of my family. And out of that has grown um, uh, what I now do for my full-time ministry, which is, is visionary family ministries and sharing this vision of Christian family life. Now, as, as the MAP team, marriage and parenting, do you get it? clever map team here at Shaw South Shore as they planned this weekend with me and we talked about the different modules and sessions and topics we settled on a subject for the sermon this morning that frankly is not the best subject for the guest preacher the best sermon for the guest preacher is the fun sermon so sometimes sermons are fun there's stories and there's jokes and it's very lighthearted and encouraging Those are the best ones for the guest preacher, because when you do those as the guest preacher, people leave saying, oh, that was great. I liked him. Wasn't that fun? Uh, Unfortunately, that's not what you got today, because uh, the, the serious message I have to share with you relates to the fact that the church in the United States is really facing a crisis, a spiritual crisis, and that spiritual crisis involves our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews. See, the reality is that the majority of kids that are growing up in Christian churches today, when they become adults, are leaving the church and or the faith. Let me show you a study that was done on this. This was from a Southern Baptist Convention, Tom Rainer. He wanted to find out what percentage of Americans claim to be Christians based on trusting Christ alone for salvation. In other words, okay, you go into Hingham, Massachusetts, do a survey. How many of you Hinghamites, what do you call yourselves? Himites, Hit, up, whatever, the people that live here. The, uh, how many of you call yourselves Christians? And some people, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, why would you use that label for yourself? Oh, well, a guy believed God made the world and we sin and God loved us and he took our sin and put it on Jesus. He died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and we're saved by grace through faith and trust in Christ. So I, that's why I'm a Christian. Doesn't have to be all that technical and precise, but something along those lines. Here's what they found. People born before 1965, 65% of the U.S. population self-identify as Christian, and they can give a basic articulation of the gospel message. People born between 46 and 64, 35%. People born between 65 and 76, 15%. And now this generation now, people born between 77 and 94, 4%. You see, folks, the advance of the gospel in our country is in serious crisis, and the crisis is a generational crisis. We're losing more of our own kids and grandkids to the world than we are winning adult converts to faith in Christ. Just imagine you won all your friends, all your neighbors, all your co-workers to Jesus, but as a church we lose our kids, grandkids, nieces, and nephews. What happens to the church? It it dies, like not spiritually, like literally, right? We we all get old and, 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 and die. Now, 21st century Christians, when they hear this, when they see this, when they realize we've got this crisis, this spiritual crisis regarding our youth, our first instinct is to say, well, oh my goodness, our children's ministries, our youth ministries, our Christian fellowships and intervarsities, they had better get with the program. We need to invest more resources in our children's and youth ministries to help these kids. Friends, after church, do a five-minute tour of the building. You will see... Some of the greatest children's ministries and youth ministries in the history of the world since Christ has been here. You realize 50 years ago that there weren't youth rooms, children's rooms, professional staff, professional curriculum, all these wonderful... We've got these resources all over the place. The church, friends, is doing more than ever. This isn't fundamentally a crisis of the church. It's fundamentally a crisis of the family. See, up until 100 years ago, every Christian would tell you when it came to youth and children's ministry, in other words, helping kids follow Jesus, well, that's the job of mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle in the home. And it's the job of the church to help them and equip them for success. What I'm going to do in this message this morning is I want to try to connect two things for you in Scripture that we usually don't connect. Those two things are, number one, your family. Now, when I say your family, I mean your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your siblings. If you're a married person, your relationship with your spouse. If you have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, your relationship with them. All of that swirl of family mess, all of those family relationships. I want to try to connect your family with God's plan for the world. I want to try to connect your family And what we might call global evangelism or global missions. Two things we usually don't put side by side. But I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to walk through the Bible. And I'm going to try to show you how these two things, God connects the family and reaching the world for Jesus together. I'm going to start in Genesis 1. Pastor Jeremy was very kind. I said, how long do I have to preach? He said, two hours-ish. He said, especially at the second service. Because the first service, you know, you're bumping into Sunday school and Christian ed and people are expecting you to wrap up. He said, but these folks, they listen to me for as long as I want to talk. So I said, that is, he has such a spiritual congregation. He's always told me that. So uh, it's a wonderful thing that I don't feel any time pressure. No, I'll uh, stick with quasi-normal preaching length here. But I am going to start in Genesis chapter 1 and I'm going to get as far as I possibly can. How many of you, when Pastor Jeremy preaches, you open to the text he's going to preach from and you follow along? Raise your hand. Ooh, this is very impressive, Jeremy. That's very good. <laughs> Normally at home, we, we preach the books of the Bible, and so I say, okay, here's our paragraph of the day, and ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Today is a little bit different, and then I'm going to be doing an overview. I'm going to be walking through about 20 different scriptures with you today. So if you are a flip to the verse with the pastor person, just limber up, you know, get your neck going. I will put them up on the screen for you, because uh, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to really, really move along. Here we go. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to skip a couple slides here. Bear with me. God makes Adam and Eve, and then God speaks to them. What are the very first words of God to the people that he creates? Someone help me. There it is. Who said that? So I can come back to you again. Come on, Rachel. Very excellent. Listen, I'm going to ask you lots of questions. Just bark out an answer. If you're wrong, I'll tell you in front of everybody. It's not a problem. (laughs) So this guy over here, he said, yeah, be fruitful and multiply. Maybe you know this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God speaks to Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful, multiply or be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I ask pastors all the time, I say, when was the last time you preached a sermon on the very first thing God said to people? I've had pastors tell me, I, I don't think I've ever preached on it. I find that curious. Don't you? In other words, God makes us and then He speaks. One would think that what comes out of the mouth of the Lord at this point is rather critical to pay attention to. And indeed it is. What God is doing in His very first blessing, in His very first commandment, is He's telling us His purpose and His plan that the rest of Scripture and history is going to work out. Here's what God is doing. God is filling this earth with His people. He's filling this earth with His people so that the earth would be filled with His Word and with His worship and with His glory. Now, how in the world, Adam and Eve, are you going to fill the earth? Well, God's made this thing called marriage. God's made this thing called family. And one generation is going to raise another generation that's going to raise another generation. And we are going to spread out and fill the earth with the worship and the Word of God. But you move forward in your Bible. You get to Genesis chapter 6. And the earth is not filled with worship. It's filled with what? Filled with sin and filled with wickedness. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, the most wicked time of human history It's not going to be repeated again. So wicked, in fact, that God in His sovereign plan begins again. And He doesn't begin again with a righteous man, Noah. He begins again with a righteous family. Noah, his wife, three sons, three wives, family of eight. Do you ever see the... Um, you ever see a children's book about Noah and the Ark? You know, cardboard books about Noah and the Ark. Usually, the pictures that they have in there really don't match the biblical account in one particular way. You've probably seen these pictures: old man Noah, like the white pointy beard with the wooden hammer out in the field, you know, building the the, the ark. He's almost always alone. A, you can't build an ark by yourself. B, he didn't build an ark by himself. He had three strapping sons who worked with him on a family chore for 100 years. Try that for half an hour in your house. 100 years this family has to work together to accomplish the will of God. <laughs> Something interesting about this. You know, when we had our first child, we did the Noah's Ark themed nursery. Do, do you know what I mean? The, 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 uh, the, the rainbow, the pastels, the clouds, the animals. It is a curious historical event in scripture to choose for the nursery if you i mean the clouds and the animals are nice and all so i mean we tried to really make it proper so down at the bottom we had all the rocks and the mountains with all the people screaming and dying with the deluge of water because you know we just said now listen we've chosen this because this is about the wrath of god against sin and we want that to comfort you while you sleep every night Um, No, we we didn't know what we were doing, but it's just a strange thing to pick for the nursery. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay, so Noah and his family, they step off the ark. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God speaks to them. What's God say as soon as they step off the ark? Anybody remember? Genesis 9, 1, then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Do you think God wants something? He wants the earth filled with his people. All of salvation history is pointing toward this same end. Let's move toward to Abraham. If I asked you why did God choose Abraham or or what was God's mission for Abraham, would you say that God gave Abraham a micro-local mission or a macro-global mission? Macro-global. In fact, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, say, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. Now, how in the world 4,000 years ago can a person have a global ministry? Today, Pastor Jeremy can get on an airplane and go to Dubai. Other side of the world, he can keep flying around preaching and teaching. You could write a book. You could send something out on the Internet. You can reach the world, if you will, today. But how do you reach the world 4,000 years ago? Well, God explains it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. First, God says in Genesis eighteen eighteen, God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. There's this macro global plan. But now what can Abraham do as an individual man in the Middle East 4,000 years ago? Here's what God says. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Abraham, I'm going to reach, use you to reach the whole world. If you want to be a part of this plan, lead your family. Focus your best ministry on raising up the next generation to know me because your mission as a global missionary is not an individual mission, Abraham. It's a multi-generational mission. And you need to have multi-generational vision if you're going to embrace it. Okay, that's the book of Genesis. How many? Okay, Bible scholars, how many books left? 65, we are right on time, okay? We're done at two-ish. Here we go. Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. The first, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The first four commandments are vertical in that they have to do with our proper worship of God. The last six commandments are horizontal in that they they deal with our proper relationship with each other. This makes the fifth commandment the first commandment for human relationships. Yeah? Yeah? You with me? What is the fifth commandment? Anyone know? Oh, jackpot. First service. They were just still sleeping at that time. But you got it right. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. God Himself put these commandments in a very particular order. If I was God, don't mean to be sacrilegious, and I'm going to give the folks the instructions. All right? Let me teach you morality. I probably would start with, don't murder anybody. Let's just start there. I'll give you more advanced skills later, but let's begin with that. But that's not the first one God puts down. The first one he puts down is, honor your father and your mother. Now, why would he do that? Because this is the first moral decision a human being faces in their life. My four-year-old boy Ray is really not dealing with do not commit adultery right now. Right? Not on his radar screen. But do you think honor your mother is in his life right now? Honor your father? Absolutely, it is. Now, I'm looking out here, I see a lot of young people. I see a lot of boys and girls and a lot of teenagers. And let me tell you, first of all, I am so happy that you are in the church service. I don't know if you know this, but when the early Christians in the New Testament times met for their corporate worship services, they had all ages together. So you doing this now is doing it just like they did and following the patterns of the, of the early church. And so I want to commend you for that. But you young people, especially uh, teenagers, elementary school kids, pay attention to me carefully right now. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question or considered, um, how am I doing as a boy or a girl or a young man or a young woman? How am I doing spiritually, especially if you're a young Christian? How could I find out, um, am I growing in my faith? One of the very best ways that you can sort of, um, I don't know, give yourself a checkup or take your temperature spiritually, is to ask yourself, how well am I honoring my mother? How well am I honoring my father? Because these commandments to to honor your dad, honor your mom, boy, especially, and this wouldn't apply to any of you, if you have a mom or dad that's hard to honor, okay? A lot of us grew up in situations like that, and maybe you are too. But you see, honoring parents is practice and preparation for our spirits in honoring our heavenly father. So, I just want to give you that encouragement. Now, as a youth pastor, I had, frankly, a real difficult time preaching this passage because there was something that confused me. It feels like, or it seemed like, that we have found the fountain of youth. In other words, the Bible says if you honor your father and mother, you're going to live a long life, you will live 70, 80, 90 years. But could I really stand up in the pulpit and say, the Bible says that if you honor your parents, you will live 70, 80, 90 years. Something that. This doesn't seem quite right about that. Therefore, the child that dies in an accident or the child that dies of illness, well, must not have honored their parents then because the Bible says, if you honor your parents, you're going to live a long life. Ephesians chapter six, it's the first commandment with a promise. So if the Bible says it's a promise, it's a promise. So I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with all that. So here's the way I always handled it. Children, adults, honor your parents, and if you do this, God will bless you. It doesn't say God will bless you. It says you'll live long in the land the Lord your God has given you, but I don't know what that means. I'm just going to sort of fuzzy it up to something good, right? Well, here's the key. I'd have another pastor friend teach me and help me understand this. The key to unlocking this commandment, and frankly, some of the others, is that the Ten Commandments are not just given to individual people. That some of the YOUs in the Ten Commandments, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you, are plural YOUs, not individual YOUs. And so here's the promise, and here's the, 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 here's the commandment, here's the promise. That if moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas will follow God, and their children and their grandchildren, their nieces and their nephews will honor their, their, their parents in the most important way of all, which is by following in their footsteps of faith, by receiving the faith that's passed down to them, then the people of God the faith community, or in New Testament terms, the church of Jesus Christ, will live long in the land. Guaranteed. What could stop your church if you win the souls of your kids and grandkids, nieces, nephews? Answer? Nothing. And Satan understands this. Which is why part of his global strategy against the gospel is to break the generational passing of the faith. We, my family was uh, ministering in Russia about a year and a half ago, and I met with a very seasoned pastor. He must have been 85, 90 years old. And he talked with us about the communist takeover of, China, of Russia um, in the early 20s. And he talked about how the first thing that the communists did spiritually, they didn't blow up all the churches, they didn't shut them all down right away. The first thing they did is that they made it illegal to bring your children. You adults, you kooky religious people, you can keep going and have your little superstitions, but your children will be statists, and they will believe there is no God. We will weed you out with one generation. And by the way, the enemy is doing the same thing in China right now. Massive revival in China among adults. And the spiritual attack right now from the government, as well as the spiritual forces of evil, are against the kids because the devil wants nothing more for that revival to be a single generation, right? A flash in the pan in the, for then for it to disappear. All right, friends, let's move on. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what Jesus calls the great commandment or the first and the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength.'" These commands I give today are to be upon your hearts. And here, following the great commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God then speaks and he gives a a multi-generational mission to his people. Let me show you the next two verses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give today are to be upon your hearts. And now God gives this multi-generational mission. It's impress them on your children. Or other translations say, teach them diligently to your children. In other words, if you want to love me, and you want to, let's use a a modern language, you want to be a great commission, missional, externally focused Christian, and you've got kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews, well, your mission begins with them. Your mission begins with those souls that have been entrusted into your care. Now, how many of you are here, and it's the desire of your heart to love God? You struggle, like me, every single day, but it's the desire of your heart. Lord, I just want to love you. Help me that your desire to love God? Okay. How many of you are here, it's the desire of your heart that your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews would love God? Okay. Sure would be nice at this point if God were to give us something um, practical we could do, right? Because right now, thank you, Lord, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and teach them diligently to your children. Okay. Yes, Lord, I'm in. But God, if you could just give me something practical, something specific, something concrete. Lord, I know there's no magic formulas. I know there's no do one, two, three, and everything will turn out perfect. But Lord, if you'd give me something specific, it sure would help. So I'd have a place to start. Wouldn't you like God to give you that? Raise your hand if you'd really appreciate the Lord passing something like that to you. He's so happy you want that. That's the next verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give to you to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Okay, Lord, but what could I possibly do? Give me something. God says, well, I'm so glad you asked. Talk about them when you sit at home. The them is the word of God, the things of God. Look at what God does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Open my book at home with your family. Open my book at home with your family. Read it with a believing heart. Because it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Down through the centuries, this has been called family worship. Family worship. Today, 5% of Christian families practice some kind of regular family prayer and regular family Bible reading. Let me read to you the way Christians that have gone before us have talked about family worship, the importance of these few moments of family prayer and family scripture in the home. Family worship was a huge part of the Protestant Reformation. People finally had the Bible in their own languages and common languages so people could read it in their own houses for themselves. And, and the Christianity spread like wildfire. You may remember the old black and white Martin Luther movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, I think, 1952. One of the priests says to Martin Luther, what would happen if every common person and potboy and swineherd had the Bible in their own language to read for themselves? Martin Luther says, well, we might have more Christians, Father. Love that. But uh, here's what they wrote. This is uh, Scotland, 1640. This was their version of the visionary parenting class, okay, 500, 400 years ago. The assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry, whether there be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. Translation, pastors, elders from your church will be assigned to visit your house to double-check and make sure you're praying and reading the Bible with your kids and your grandkids. How would you like that one? Okay. If such a family is found, the head of the family, could be a man, could be a woman, is to be admonished privately to amend his or her fault. Elder takes you aside. Dear friend, you need to be praying and reading the Bible with your kids and grandkids. Oh, yes, pastor, absolutely. And in case of his continuing therein, still not praying and reading the Bible with the kids, He's to be gravely and sadly reproved by the church council. So we're going to bring you in now. You're going to meet with all the elders and the deacons of the church council, and we're going to say, hey, you've got to be praying and reading the Bible with your kids. Family worship in your home. After which, reproof, if he's still found to neglect family worship, let him be for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper until he amend. We're sorry, sir, you can't take communion until you begin praying and reading the Bible with your kids. Whoa, 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 time out. Church discipline over this is a little crazy here. Let me explain to you how they explained it. These churches were radically committed to the global advance of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they believed the gospel message began with the souls of the kids. And the kids were entrusted to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in the home. And that the Bible said mom and dad and grandma and grandpa needed the home, needed to be praying and reading the Bible with their children in the home. So, in order to be a global Great Commission church, we've got to be a family worship church. And if you're not a family worship church, maybe you're not on board. Or if you're not a family worship family, maybe you're really not on board with the mission of our church. Maybe you're really not on board with the advance of the gospel. See, they believed that the spiritual life in the home overflowed into the church. That when the church family gathered for worship on Sundays, it was an overflow and an outpouring of all the spiritual life that had been going on privately in their homes throughout the week. They believed God created two institutions to advance the gospel in the world, the local church and the family. And they were designed to work together. Let's go toward the end of the Old Testament Got to skip a bunch of stuff. Pastor said I had to. We're going to talk about the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> Malachi for some. Malachi chapter four, verses four, five, and six. This is the way the Old Testament ends. And by the way, something that I'll share with you briefly. Well, I'll share this in just a moment. Don't want to get ahead of myself. Malachi chapter four, verses four through six. These are the very last words of God in the Old Testament. There's going to be no new scripture for 400 years after this. God says, "'Remember the law of my servant Moses, "'the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. "'See, I will send you the prophet Elijah "'before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. "'He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children "'and the hearts of the children to their fathers, "'or else I will come and strike the land with a curse.'" That's the happy ending right there. There's no more Bible for 400 years after this. What's God saying? He says, "My Holy, the time's coming. My Holy Spirit's going to work in such a way that the hearts of fathers are going to turn to the ministry of their children and the hearts of children are going to turn to their fathers, that this multi-generational advance of the gospel is going to accelerate. Quick personal story. My mother, when she became a Christian when I was a baby, she had no spiritual background of any kind, and so she was just a sponge for whatever people would teach her. And so one of her friends said, well, you need to uh, choose a Bible verse for Mark, my brother, and Robbie, me. You need to choose a verse and pray that verse for them, like choose a life verse for your boys. Make sense? So she's like, okay, I'll choose a life verse for my boys. And my mom never told me what the life verse was until I was an adult. And the thing that the Lord impressed on her heart to pray for me from the time I was three months old was that I would grow up to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, how many of you are praying mamas? Mothers, yeah, okay, praying mothers. When you're praying, you're not talking to the wall or or to the ceiling. You're talking to God. God's listening. Personally, I think that Visionary Family Ministries is sort of a direct answer to my mom's prayers, that this was prayer investment on her part into... My life as her son. Here's an amazing thing about the Bible. These are the last words of the Old Testament casting this vision for multi generational faithfulness with the father as the leader of the family. And the first words of the New Testament say the exact same thing. The link between the testaments is the vision of multi generational faith. And the father's heart turning to the child, child's heart turning to the father. God doesn't speak again, He doesn't reveal new scripture again. Until, 400 years later, the angel Gabriel speaks to an old man named Zechariah. Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. Elizabeth has a baby growing in her womb, John the Baptist. And so the words of Gabriel, which are recorded in Luke chapter 1, the words of Gabriel are the next words of God since Malachi 4. Make sense? So the Lord kind of put a period here, waited 400 years. Now he's going to speak again. So let's put them together and see what we get. Um, see, I'll send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of children to the fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers, or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. God picks up 400 years later. Many of the people of Israel will he, John the Baptist, bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Sound familiar? Now what's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous in order to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If you've been around church for a while, you understand that God sent John the Baptist to prepare the hearts of people for Jesus. But how did he do that? Well, according to the angel, he went around doing two things, pleading with fathers to turn their hearts to the ministry of their children and pleading with everyone to turn from the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and repent of their sins. Now, why would he do the first part? Why would he do this family ministry, pleading for fathers and parents to turn their hearts to their kids and kids to turn their hearts back to their parents? Because when parents are engaged in the multi-generational mission of their faith, and children give their hearts back to their parents and want to follow in their footsteps of faith, everybody's heart's ready for Jesus. Everybody's heart's soft and ready for the love of Heavenly Father. Let me talk to you about the Great Commission here as we move through the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28. Again, if you're a a believer, you're a member of this church, it's a familiar text to you. Jesus, between his resurrection and ascension, gives his disciples this mission. He says, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. I want to suggest to you that Jesus's great commission is a reiteration of in an expansion of the first commandment in Genesis 1. Let me show it to you. The Great Commission and first commandment. Jesus says, make disciples. First commandment says, be fruitful and multiply. Jesus says, of all nations. First commandment says, fill the earth. Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the whole Bible, by the way. First commandment says, subdue it subdue every sphere of this world, economics, family, church, morality, government, money, under the reign and rule of King Jesus. You see, folks, God hasn't changed his plan. God hasn't changed his mission. He's accomplishing one purpose. Now, you may say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying that the Great Commission, making disciples, is about fostering children and adopting children and grandparenting and parenting? No, no, no. The the Great Commission is a reiteration. It's an expansion of the first commandment. But what I am saying is that adopting children and fostering children and grandparenting and parenting, it's all about the Great Commission. It's all about the call to make disciples, to impact this world for Christ, to advance God's kingdom in the world with multi-generational vision. And the early church, the first Christians, they understood it. They preached it. They talked about it. Let me show you Peter's first sermon, Acts chapter 2. This is the launch of the church. He finishes his sermon this way. He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. There it is again. This is the threefold move of the gospel, cover to cover in the Bible. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. You, your kids in the world. And in 20th century Christianity, we took the middle piece out. And so sermons in church every single week, all around our country, two basic points. Number one, get right with God. Number two, please volunteer in one of our ministries. Please sign up for the trip. Please go be good. Please go be served. One that's it. I mean you can put the buckets, there we go. We've skipped the middle piece, which is this repent, believe, get right with God through his grace. Honor your parents. Prepare to take care of them in your old age, in their old age. Love your siblings. Share the gospel with them. Support them. Are you a married person? Your ministry for Jesus begins with the soul of your wife, the soul of your husband. Do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Do you have nieces, nephews? Your great commission begins with those souls that have been entrusted to your care. Oh, and then please, as a family, would you please volunteer in one of our ministries? As a family, would you please engage in this, these spiritual opportunities that are all uh, around you? The early church emphasized this for fathers in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord In the visionary parenting and visionary marriage stuff. We talked a lot about that. The same was true for the way the early church handled pastors and deacons. If you wanted to be a pastor in the early church, a pastor elder, you had to first demonstrate that you were already a pastor in your house. You want to teach the Bible to people? Show us you are already a Bible teacher in your home for your children, your grandchildren, your wife. You want to pray with people? Show us you already know how to pray with people, your children, your grandchildren. This is what it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. An elder, this is qualifications for elder pastor. Elder must be blameless, the husband but one wife, uh, Man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, they understood that gospel ministry began in the home and it overflowed to the church, not the other way around. I have one last scripture before I prepare to conclude. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John here writing, perhaps about his own children, perhaps about spiritual children, and he's discipled. But it's true, no greater joy than to know that one of our kids is walking with the Lord. But you know what? The opposite's true. No greater sorrow for Christian man, Christian woman, when one of our own kids is far from God. And you remember the statistics I shared with you before? The other side of those statistics, and we've done this survey in churches all over the country, two-thirds of empty nest parents in the church today, two-thirds of parents who have adult children, have at least one of those adult children who is not saved or far from God. And it is the greatest source of pain and suffering and grief in their life. And the enemy loves to pig pile on this one. You blew it. Yeah, you think you did your best, you brought them to church and you had a Christian family, but your best was not good enough, apparently. That's not me, you don't understand. That's the temptation. that's the, the devil. And all you can do now is pray for them. And we all know that doesn't do any good. Again, not me here. Look around your church. You see all these happy families, the perfect kids. Everybody's so successful, and all 17 of their kids are missionaries. You're the only family with problems here I want you to know that Everybody else has got it together Not you Do you see how the enemy pig piles on that? And you become so overwhelmed with guilt You so come over so overwhelmed with, with sadness All of that's designed to do something very specific by the way If you've got an adult child that's far from God They need you more than they've ever needed you before And so you know what the enemy does He tries to discourage you That you have no more influence in this kid's life you had your chance. You missed your window. Too bad. All you can do, is just pray for somebody else to do it. Friends, as long as you've got breath and as long as that son or daughter's got breath, it's never too late for God to use you as mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt or uncle to point them to Christ, to show them the love of God as they're out as that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter. So, you know, down at the resource table downstairs, we've got some real if that's your situation, my heart is with you, and we've got some real specific things that, that I'd like to share with you there. But as I've gone through these scriptures this morning, does it make more sense to you now why the spiritual forces of evil target your family so ferociously? Why your relationship with your parents is just so hard. Why, your relationship with your siblings is so difficult. You spend 10 years in women's Bible study, no fights at all, but five minutes on the phone with your sister, and you just can't handle it. Why is it just so hard? The marriage relationship, why is there so much conflict and so much difficulty? And why is my relationship with my kids so hard? Because Satan and the demons know exactly what they're doing. They know that the advance of the gospel in the world is a multi-generational advance. And so they strike right at the heart. They strike at the core engine of multi-generational faithfulness, which is the family. Friends, what I'd like to do this morning as we, as we conclude now is to go into a time of prayer. I believe, I hope, that the scriptures that I shared with you, that God used them to, to put a conviction and a burden on your heart for some issues in your family. There may be a marriage. It may be your parents' marriage, your marriage, a sibling's marriage, a child's marriage. There may be a marriage in your family that needs an absolute miracle of God. It needs a miracle to save it. I want to encourage you in just a moment when we pray, go to God and plead for that miracle for him, from Him. Maybe you're here and you, you've got one of those prodigal children. When was the last time you pleaded with God to bring that son or daughter, that grandson, that granddaughter to repentance of their sins and faith in Christ? Plead with Him today for that. Or maybe you're here and, and you've got to do exactly what I had to do. You've been the head of your home. You could be a man or a woman. You're the head of your home, but you've not been the spiritual head of your home. You haven't led your family with prayer. You haven't led your family just with opening the book and bumbling and stumbling and reading it to them. And God convicted you today. Repent. Repent. Experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and then ask God through the Holy Spirit to help you stumble your way forward in becoming that man, becoming that woman that he's created you to be. Let's pray now. You may want to pray in a whisper prayer with a friend or a family member next to you. It may not be the right thing to pray alone in this moment. Pray for that miracle for that marriage. Pray for that prodigal child. Repent of that lack of leadership. Whatever God puts on your heart, pray now and offer that to Him. Heavenly Father, all around this room right now, there are prayers for miracles being lifted up to you. People are lifting up hopeless marriages, hopeless as far as the world goes. They're lifting them up to you, the God of hope, asking for a miracle. Parents and grandparents are offering up prodigal children who maybe at one time seem to be walking with you or maybe never. But, Lord, they've prayed for a miracle that your Holy Spirit would work in their lives, maybe even right now, maybe even in these moments of prayer, breaking their heart over their sin and leading them to cry out for a Savior in Jesus. And then, Lord, prayers of repentance of moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas that have had their hearts turned to their kids through the Scriptures that we shared. And, And they realize their number one mission in the world for Jesus, for the gospel, is to do all in their power to help those kids safely home to heaven. And Lord, I want to pray for the sons and daughters, the grandsons and the granddaughters represented by the people in this room. Lord, I pray that, that every single one of them would, through your grace, repent of their sins and trust Christ and follow him. They would love him. Pray then that they would live in such a way as to advance the gospel in this world farther than any of us can. And then, Lord, that you would bring us safely home to heaven together. And we lift up all these prayers for miracles in the name of Jesus. Amen.